<clears throat> here's what we're going to do. Um, as you turn in your Bible, look at uh, chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 16, but really we're going to read all the way down through um, 21. And I know that seems like a lot of Scripture to be looking at, but what we're going to do is look at it over two weeks. So this week we're going to look mainly at John 3:16 and what follows it, and 17 and roughly 18, and we'll mention the rest of it. And next week we'll focus more on the last part of that, which is the contrast between darkness and light that really becomes this huge theme for John. He's already introduced it to us in the first couple of chapters, like he does most of the themes that he has throughout the rest of his gospel. And, um, and so we want to kind of see where he's going with that, because those first mentions after that first uh, chapter become very crucial for how he builds it from that point forward. And we even see that here in chapter 1, if you... Um, look back in chapter 1, you'll see where he first talks about this idea of believing. Uh, you go down to verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which we were just talking about that whole idea of adoption. And now all of a sudden, what does he have with Nicodemus but this conversation about being born again? What is that but, but coming into a family? And not only that, the, the picture of childbirth is also a picture of darkness to light because in the womb, the child is in complete darkness and it's through this tumultuous journey that he has that he has no idea when it's going to happen the mother has no idea what it's going to happen but when it begins it begins very quickly and that child transitions from darkness into light right and so jesus uses this as an illustration to say what's true physically is also true spiritually we're walking in our darkness and we have no idea and then all of a sudden we have this moment and w stepping out of that darkness into the light becomes this very convicting powerful moment for us and that's what jesus is trying to draw nicodemus out of the shadows remember john contextualizes this whole conversation as nicodemus is this pharisee and he comes to jesus in the cover of night why? Because we know the Pharisees are already questioning Jesus. In just a few verses beyond this, when we go a couple more pericopes forward, we're going to see they're already ready to kill him this early in the gospel. And so he's taking a huge chance, but at the same time, he doesn't want the repercussions of that chance. He's just curious. He's not convinced Jesus is the Messiah, but he knows that he can't deny that Jesus is performing these amazing miracles, and he's seeing things and hearing things that have stoked his interest in who Jesus might be. So he comes to him and he says, oh, you're a great teacher. We know that you're a great teacher. And Jesus just cuts to the chase, doesn't he? He's like, let's cut out all the small talk and all the pleasantries. And let me just say this, unless you're born of the spirit and of water, unless you're born again, in other words, you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. And he's like, whoa. And then Jesus begins to explain that there, right? So one thing I want to highlight, let's go back and I don't have this on the slide, so you have to look at your own copy of Scripture. I want to just you again to hear the context flowing into the verses that we have here. So all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, which is very nice, a very nice compliment. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And we'll read the rest of those verses in just a few minutes. But you see how that all flows in that conversation. And so John 3.16, I think a lot of times we memorize it almost as like a verse that just kind of sits out there and it's like from the wisdom literature, like from Proverbs. And we, we, we read, oh, it's a great. No, it's in the context of a conversation, a conversation that's been developing, a conversation that's very deep, a conversation where Jesus is being highlighted as this great teacher. And he says, you have no idea. You're thinking only in the physical. You've got to think from a spiritual perspective. And he begins to give these illustrations of birth, of the wind. And then ultimately he comes to that very obscure passage that we looked at last week. Look again at verse 14 and 15. He says there, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that comes from a passage in Numbers 21. Now, I know that we looked at it last week, but I just want you to hear again, in case some of you may not have been here. It's a very short passage. Uh, I want to read that to you and let you hear the reference where he's coming. He's coming from Numbers 21. This is when the people have been freed from Egypt, but they've been wandering around the wilderness because they didn't have faith that God could take them into the promised land. So now they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're beginning to rebel against God again. God had been providing for them miraculously. I mean, he gave them water coming from a rock. He gave them meat that came from heaven called manna. And, and their hearts became very disinterested in those things. And listen to what happens. Verse 4 of Numbers 21. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Think about what they just said there. No food and no water. And by the way, this food that we are eating, so there is food. Uh, yeah, well, it's worthless food. Worthless food. I mean, it's a miracle of God provided from heaven. Every day they have to do nothing for it but gather it. It is a miracle that they're experiencing. They're right when they say there is no food and water out there. And yet you have survived because God provided for you miraculously. And instead of being thankful for the miracle that's in front of them, 
They speak against God and they speak against Moses. It continues in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So that's their prayer, take the serpents away. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And then if you look at the very next passage, it goes on to some other thing. It doesn't even talk about that again. Now, in the in New Testament, this is the only time this passage is mentioned. It's the only time that they um, mention about the, the serpents being put up on the pole. So Jesus mentions this, and it's this obscure passage. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this passage, being a Pharisee, because they've memorized the entire Old Testament. So he knows exactly what he's talking about, just as Moses lifted up. But there's a lot of things there that I want to connect before we get to John 3.16. I want to remind us of some things that we talked about last week. Number one, this is a picture that Jesus is using of our own problem. The serpents represent the wrath of God that's come into the camp, right? The serpents are there because the people have rebelled against God. And so the serpents are their experience. Now, they cry out, and they're like, we don't want these serpents around. Please remove them. But does God remove them? No, they're still there. It's just like the sinful world that we live in. We live in a sinful world, and God does not remove the temptation. Just because you pray and ask God, Lord, I, I don't want this temptation around me. I don't want all these problems. God doesn't rescue us from the problems. He rescues us in the midst of them. And that's exactly what he does there. So Jesus is using this as a picture of what's physically true is also spiritually true. The serpents represent the curse or the sin, sinful world or culture that we live in. Okay, Now, Instead of just letting them perish and die and experience their condemnation they brought on themselves, God listens to their prayers and he provides for them a way out, a way of escape. And it was this pole where they fashioned this bronze serpent and put it on the pole. Now, let's go back and remind ourselves of two very significant things. Number one, bronze is related to humanity in the Old Testament. So let me give you a great example of that. If you go to the construction of the tabernacle and even the temple, but the tabernacle was the first one where they had the holy place and the holy of holies. Y'all familiar with, with those stories? And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where God dwelt. And once a year on the Day of Atonement was the only time anyone could walk in there, and it was only the high priest and only with blood from a sacrifice. So it's God's invitation. That's the only time he would ever go into the presence of God. There was a room right outside of the Holy of Holies, which is called the Holy Place. Now, we call these things furniture, although it's not furniture like a couch, but that's what the scripture calls it, furniture. But it's like these items that are in the tabernacle. So if you could think of a big courtyard that's a big rectangle, you would walk in from the front end of that tabernacle. The first thing you would see is a bronze altar. This is where all the sacrifices were made. Okay, all of the sacrifices for repentance, peace offerings, all these different offerings, that's where the, the, it was consumed with this fire there. Okay? Now, right behind it is a bronze laver. This is where the priest would wash himself ceremonially before he walks into the actual tabernacle, which the first room was the holy place. Now, when you walk into the holy place, to your left would have been the big menorah. It was called the golden lampstand. 
um, to your right would have been the golden table of showbread. Right in front of you was the golden altar of incense. And then there was this big veil that had these two angels, they call them cherubim, that face each other on that veil. And that veil is what separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And behind that veil, where the high priest only went once a year, was two other pieces of what we call furniture in the, in the scripture. And it looks like one because it's like a box, but the lid is actually talked about differently. So the box itself is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's also gold. And the mercy seat is also made of gold. And on top of the mercy seat is those cherubim, again, that are facing each other and looking down onto the mercy seat, which is where the blood would be applied. Now, I tell you that whole thing, not because we're going to do a whole dissertation on the tabernacle, but just to show you how symbolically everything outside the tabernacle is bronze. Everything inside the tabernacle is gold. Why? Because everything on the outside is preparing man to meet with deity that's on the inside. All the things on the outside are about what we need. We have to have a substitute sacrifice. Therefore, there's an altar. We need to be washed and cleansed. Therefore, there is a laver. All of that stuff is bronze because it represents humanity. Once you go into the inside, it's gold. Gold represents deity. And so that's God's place. Humanity is on the outside. Humanity needs sacrifice and washing before they can approach God. You see that progression that's there? Okay, so whenever we talk about him lifting up a bronze serpent, there's two things that we pay attention to. Number one, bronze represents humanity. So that serpent represents, number one, a human perspective. What is John already telling us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. There's humanity. All right. The other thing is the serpent. Now, the serpent would obviously take us all the way back to Genesis 3. What did the serpent try and convince Adam and Eve of and was very successful? You can't trust God. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. What did he try and tell them? Did God really tell you you can't eat of any tree in the garden? You know, what, what have the Israelites in this passage in Numbers bought into? God isn't giving us his best. All he's given us is worthless food. And that serpent is still telling those lies, and humanity is still buying them. They're believing them. So you would think, though, at the same time, that Jesus, if he's going to compare himself to something, why in the world would he compare himself to the serpent, the picture of the curse? And I think Paul picks up on that. When Paul writes later on, he says that Jesus becomes accursed for us. So when he compares himself to that snake, he is in essence saying, when I am lifted up on the cross, I am a picture of humanity and I'm a picture of the curse that has plagued humanity, and I'm going to take the whole curse onto myself. Okay. Now, the whole rest of the story is also pretty cool, because what do they have to do there? But whenever they're bitten by the snake, again, God doesn't remove the snakes. They're still there. But when they're bitten, there is a reprieve that they can experience. All they have to do is to look to the serpent that's up on the pole. Now, that again fits into the context and the flow of the whole Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, what is John creating with these relationships that he's introducing us to at the very beginning? Uh, Nathaniel is off, and Philip goes and gets him, and he's, uh, he's like, come and see the one who is the Messiah. Come and see the one that we have found that is the Messiah of old. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see for yourself. And so he came and he saw, and Jesus says, greater things than this you will see. So over and over again, that theme of seeing is very important for John, and it will continue to be very important as he moves forward. But this is almost a, a, a 
magnified picture of this seeing. If you see, if you look, that's all you have to do in the wilderness. You look to that serpent on the pole and you would be healed. In other words, the, the venom that infected your body would somehow be mitigated and you wouldn't perish there in the wilderness. Instead, you would live. Do you see that? Now do you see why John 3.16 follows that picture? If you continue and you follow that, what you find is that John 3.16 is directly connected to that story that Jesus was telling him from Numbers 21. John's making it clear here again. This is a kind of compassion that God has demonstrated. And this compassion, this kind of love demands a response. He is in essence saying, whoever looks upon Christ with faith, if they truly believe that he was sent from God and that he is the answer to our problems, that he's God's answer to our problems, God's answer to our sin and our rebellion, then everlasting life can be ours and we no longer have to languish in our own wilderness of sin. This is how God has provided for us. Look again how he continues in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Go back to verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is directly connected to that passage that he's talking about right there. And also notice that he says, gave his only son. Now, when he says he gave his only son, that's important because that would perk our interest. That would make us think back to what? Abraham. When God said to Abraham, 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 I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, your only son. Same exact wording. So our minds would go back to the story of Isaac and Abraham. Now, here's what's interesting. Is, this is a, a little bit of a tricky question, is Isaac Abraham's only son? No, Abraham had another son. What was his name? Ishmael. Now, by the time God calls him to sacrifice Isaac, Ishmael's already had to leave the camp. Okay, there's a whole bad circumstances. It shows us the consequences of our sin. When we get ahead of God, there's always consequences to that. But God was, in essence, saying, listen, that's your answer to your own problems. That's not my answer. That's not what I was doing. This is what I'm doing. Isaac is the miracle child. That's what I'm going to do. So when he calls him to sacrifice Isaac, it's interesting that God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. Okay. Now, when it comes to the gospel, what does it say? But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, here's a trick question. Does God only have one son? I think there's some imagery here that he's drawing our attention to that scripture does as a whole. God actually has two sons. And by saying sons, what I'm saying is there are only two people in history who had a unique bringing into life because of God's direct activity. Who are they? Jesus and Adam. Adam was fashioned by the hand of God. He wasn't born of a woman. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But that son rebelled. And so later on, Jesus, and Paul picks up on this, and he calls Adam the first Adam, and what does he call Jesus? The second Adam. The first Adam is set aside for the second. So when he says, my son, my only son, it's that same picture of Abraham when he says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. 
So all of this imagery comes to mind, especially for Nicodemus at this point, when he's hearing these words, he's beginning to understand what Jesus means by this new birth and, and what it means to understand this idea of God's love. Look how it continues. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to that light." so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So John tells us here that somehow the lifting up of Christ is a reflection, it's a statement of God's love to the entire world. In fact, this was God's plan from the very beginning, and that's what John's going to tell us throughout his gospel. John introduces us here to this concept of God's love. This is really the first mention of it in his gospel. The immediate implication that we have here is that this love that God has, that God is demonstrating, is somehow a catalyst to everything else that God does. In other words, God's love is central to all the other characteristics of God. Think about this for a moment. God's wrath is motivated by God's love. God's grace is motivated by God's love. God's mercy is motivated by God's love. So somehow this characteristic is not just another characteristic of God. It is the central characteristic of God. And so he's telling us that this is who God really is at his core. And that his love is what motivates all the other characteristics of God. It is central to his being. So God, so John here reminds us of how he reaches out. God reaches out to those who need it most and usually deserve it the least, like those dying Israelites. They deserved what they had coming to them. But you know what? Let's take that story further. If we understand the imagery here and the connection, then it's not just the Israelites, but it's also Nicodemus who he reaches out to, who needs it the most and deserves it the least. And while we're at it, why don't we go ahead and add our names to that story? He reaches out to us, and we deserve it the least, and we need it the most. However, John highlights here, using the words of Jesus in this conversation, that God's love is not selective for only a few. In fact, it is universal in its ability to save. In other words, John is saying there is zero limitations to the love of God and what it has the potential to do. Jesus tells us that his descent from heaven is nothing less than God displaying his love for the entire world. Now, what's shocking about John 3.16 is not how big God's love is. It's the fact that God can love something that's so disgusting as the world. Something that's so rebellious as the world. Something that's so undeserving as the world. Think about how scripture calls us to love each other. And really John, John centers in on love. What does John do in his uh, pastoral letters? God is love. He that loves not knows not God because God is love. 
Beloved, love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. And if you love not, you know. See, all those pictures there, John is central understanding that if you can wrap your mind around the love of God and somehow allow that to transform your soul, it will change every relationship in your life. Because let's be honest, most of our relationships are not impacted by the love of God because we often love according to what people deserve. We give and exchange affection according to what we think you deserve today. We give and exchange compliments based on what we think you deserve today. But I just want to highlight for a moment that the love of God is not based on what you've done. It's not based on who you are. It's not based on what you deserve. God demonstrates his love in that while, Paul says this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the expression of the central characteristic of God, love. Notice also here, that also here that we learn that love is never passive. Hey, we'll use that term a lot of times. Love you. Hey, love you. Oh, love that. Love those tacos. Love that car. We say it as an admiration, but God never uses the, the word love and admiration. It's always active. God demonstrates his love, Paul says. It says here that God shows his love in the fact that he sends his son. God's love is active. And if we reflect the love of God, guess what? Our love becomes active as well. And John's going to get to that uh, a little later in 17 and 18, that our deeds become reflective of whether we are in the light or whether we are in the darkness. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. When we think about what God gives, the focus of his love, or I guess the, the context of his love, what is it? The way he shows his love is by giving his only son. Now, that's the gift that God gives. I want you to think for a moment. Aren't gifts often reflective of the depth of love in that relationship? Okay, let's just use, for example, many of you are already married. Okay, so when you, husbands, introduced yourself to your wives... You grew in your love and affection to the point one day that you decided you want to spend the rest of your life with this person. And the way that you initiated that, hopefully, is that you went out and bought a nice ring, right? It, had, it was made of precious metals. It wasn't the cubic zirconia that you get at Walmart. It was a real diamond. And then you presented to that person and said, I want to be with you the rest of my life. And this is a token of how much I value you. Oftentimes, the, the gift is reflective of the depth of love in that relationship. And, and, and have you ever gotten a gift that you felt like the person doesn't even know you? Women, how many times have you gotten a gift that was more for the man than it was for you, right? The vacuum cleaner, right? The, the baking sheets, the lingerie, whatever it may be, right? I mean, it's always you get these gifts and you're like, thanks a lot. Um, Sometimes our gifts sometimes are, are, are more self-focused. But when we see the love of God, what is it? But he gives a gift that only costs him and only benefits the receiver. That is a deep kind of love. That is a love that is demonstrated in a deed that cannot be taken any other way but this unselfish demonstration of the depth of how much one person appreciates another. Think about this again. If the gift is reflective 
of how much a person values the receiver of that gift, what does the cross say about how much God loves you and I? I mean, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. You know what? We need to let this wash over our souls and just remind us that we don't have to earn God's love. He demonstrated his love while we were sinners. You think he's going to love you any more because you get something right every once in a while? You think he's going to love you more just because you memorize a few verses, because you get it right a couple of times, because you tie to the church every once in a while? Yeah, that's not going to add to it. He already fully loves you. That's why it's safe to come out of that darkness and come into the light and let your deeds be exposed because that scares us to death because in our earthly relationships, that's what scares us. It's what scares us in our marriages. It's what scares us in our churches. It's what scares us in our relationships with our family. We don't want them to know the things that we struggle with on the inside. We don't want them to know the things that we are, the things that we've done. Why? Because we feel like we'll be judged for that, that it will be held against us at some point. But let me tell you something. Your family is not God. God has already demonstrated I love you while you're in that darkness, and I know exactly who you are and what you've done and where you've been, and I've already demonstrated how much I love you. Now, I invite you to come out of that darkness and stand in the light and find some reconciliation for your soul. Find some healing for your heart. Find some purpose and meaning for your life that you're never going to find if you just keep walking around in that darkness. But how am I going to find this? How am I going to accept this? Well, he goes on. Whoever believes in him. It's that simple. It's believing in him. So the way we accept this invitation is actually the same way that God's grace has always been received. Because you go back to the story of Abraham again. And what do you find? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This was before there was circumcision. Abraham could do anything to prove his love for God. This was before the law was given to Moses. So there was nothing that was given there that says, you have to do this, this, and this to meet my expectations. No, Abraham just simply believed, God, you are good, and you are a promise keeper, and somehow you're going to be faithful to this. Abraham just simply believed God at his word, and God counted that to him as if he was fully righteous. And all he did was believe. Do you understand the same thing is true about us at the cross? We have to believe that is my penalty that he paid. He's paying the full effect, and he took the full effect of of my sin on the cross. And I believe that he's the son of God, and I believe he's the Messiah, and I believe that he paid my sins. And it's counted to you as righteousness, as if you are fully righteous. Accepted. What a beautiful picture of what the gift of salvation is. Now, there is a little bit of a paradox to this. The demonstration of God's love carries with it this paradox that, I mean, honestly, John wants us to be very aware of it. He wants to draw our eyes to it. In fact, I believe that the lies that people believe about salvation, like I've got to earn God's love, so it's my belief and me being good. Or they believe, well, I can do anything that I want. All these lies that we believe about salvation, the enemy sells to us 
these are the things that keep us from truly accepting this incredible gift. And I believe that these lies are wrapped up in this very thing. So watch this. This is, this is how John has, has, has given it to us so far. Jesus came to save, to restore, to heal, to be an advocate. He came to love to save, to heal, to offer us spiritual life through this new birth. Jesus makes a point to tell Nicodemus, I am the coming Messiah, and the coming Messiah was never intended to be, listen to me, condemnation. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you. Guess what? You were already condemned. His purpose was not to come to show you how bad you were. You already know, if you're honest, how bad you were. That's not why he came. Just like, go back to Numbers 21, the people were already perishing in the wilderness. The, the snake that he lifted up on the pole, the bronze serpent, that, that didn't condemn anyone. They were already condemned. That didn't make anybody perish. They were already perishing. That was the relief from the perishing. And Jesus is reminding Nicodemus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to condemn the world. The Jews thought that he did. He was there to condemn the Romans and condemn all the other nations that had gone against God, the Edomites and the Malachites and all these other different groups of people that existed in that day of time. But he says, the Son of Man did not come. The Messiah did not come to condemn the world. But instead, that the world might find a refuge that the world might find salvation, that the world might find new life. And John's going to demonstrate this in relationships. Um, he's going to go and show us this in the stories that he depicts for us. One of them is this woman who's caught in adultery. And Jesus says to her at the end of this, after he says all these very profound things, and so everybody that's ready to stone her drops the rocks, they walk away, and he looks at this woman who has been caught in adultery, okay? You talk about bad reputation, there it is for you. You talk about game and, uh, uh, shame and guilt, there it is for you. You talk about someone who loves to stay in the darkness and hates being brought into the light, there she is. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? They've all gone. What does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn anybody. He came so that we might find help from our condemnation, a reprieve from that condemnation. There's another time where he's talking to a woman at the well, and he says to her, uh, go get your husband. He goes, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You have five husbands, and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. Wait, that hurts. I've just been brought out of the darkness into the light. And you know what that woman probably thought at that moment? That she's about to be treated like she was by every one of those other men in her relationship. That she was about to be exposed. That she was about to be treated and tormented because of who she is. She was waiting to be treated by him like she was by every other man. But instead, Jesus says, listen, I know who you are. You don't have to hide it. But let me tell you something. There's a day coming. It's already here if you can believe it. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he reveals to this woman, this woman who has a bad reputation, this woman that nobody wants to walk out to the well with her because of her reputation. He says to her, reveal, this is amazing, people don't miss this. He reveals to that woman that he's the Messiah. And he's told everybody else, don't say anything about this. Don't tell anybody this. And he's kept, but to this woman, he says, I'm he. I'm the Messiah. I've come to help you. I've come to redeem you. I've come to restore you, not take advantage of you. 
And this woman, totally transformed from this experience with Jesus, runs all the way back to her place where she has this bad reputation. And she says to everyone, come see the man who knows everything about me. He's the Messiah. And the village all comes out there. And the scripture says that many believed on his name and were saved that day. What a beautiful picture of how God loves us. He doesn't condemn us. We're already condemned, people. That's what this story is about. There is both an incredible prospect in the gospel as well as an incredible possibility of great danger. And that happens every time we come to Jesus, just like it was for Nicodemus. Think about Nicodemus for a moment. If Nicodemus is able to lay aside everything that he's learned or thought about God from his human perspective, all his preconceived ideas, everything that he thinks God is, and he's able to embrace Jesus as the one who has come down from heaven and is the demonstration of God's love by being lifted up, the only answer to the epidemic of sin and humanity, then Nicodemus can find life. He can be born again. But if he chooses to walk away from this personal revelation and decide that his way is better, and he continues to work out his own salvation with this superficial pride that he had developed, with this self-righteousness that he thinks, I'm better than most other people, therefore God will accept me, then he's going to remain under the condemnation that he already lives in. It doesn't matter how noble his efforts are. He will remain under the condemnation and he will ultimately perish in that state. That's what's so amazing about about darkness. That's what's so amazing about evil and the draw that it has on our hearts. You know, it keeps asking us to stay where we are in the darkness. It keeps asking us to neglect the possible freedom that we have by walking into the light. There is something about us as humans that we really want to take credit for everything that we do. And the only way we can do that is to hide everything that we don't do very well. So we have to stay in the darkness to claim any validity by our own actions. We want to take at least some credit for our salvation. That's how we know we're still in the darkness. We want our efforts highlighted. That's how we know we're still in the darkness. Again, It is the ugliness of the cross that shames this kind of thinking. The ugliness of the cross reminds us that Jesus had to take care of our entire debt. We could not pay a dime, a penny on it. We were completely bankrupt. And I've said this before, but I think that we do a disservice when we think about the cross and how we have cleaned up the cross to a large degree. Think about the crosses that you have in your house. They're all ornate. They look very beautiful. Think about the crosses that we wear as jewelry around our neck. They're made out of precious metal and they're gold. They look beautiful. That's not the way the cross looked. The cross was bloodied. It had pieces of Jesus' flesh on it. It was a symbol of someone who had been butchered. And the reason that that becomes the symbol of it is this. If we could add anything to, if we could do anything to get ourselves a little closer to God, then maybe that sacrifice would not be demanded. Maybe we could take a little bit or make up a little bit from the wrath of God that that we owed, and then Jesus could just pay the rest of it in another way. But the problem and the story of the gospel and our sin is this. We couldn't pay one ounce. So when it came time to save your soul and my soul, Jesus had to be brutally butchered on a cross because that's how seriously God takes sin and that's how sinful you and I are. 
The cross is so ugly of an execution because that's how bad our sin is. And it also reflects our deficiency to contribute anything towards our salvation. If we were kind of good, maybe God could have supplemented it. Maybe he could have pushed us across that finish line. But the cross is so brutal because we needed God to mitigate everything that we had done wrong. And John goes on to highlight the choice of light and darkness. But notice how he also immediately connects the idea of light and darkness with our deeds or our actions. Look at this verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Least his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, it is in our deeds that our react, rejection of God is most clearly seen. It's when we say that we love God, but then we go out and keep loving this world. We keep living for this world. We keep trying to find our meaning and our purpose in the things that we get here, whether it's status or whether it's relationships or whether it's pleasure, whatever it may be, we keep trying to find our significance in the things of this life. Our deeds show that we've never walked out of the darkness. The deeds are the key to why we love darkness. We love it because we don't want to be exposed. So when we act on the truth and we receive this invitation of God, we show, we demonstrate that we believe. And before you accuse me of promoting any kind of works-based salvation, let's look at the last part of verse 21. Let's specifically look at the last two words. How is the good works that when we're brought into the light, how are they carried out? Yeah, in God. You can't do it. It's a beautiful picture of really the whole gospel story because you think about it, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, God gives the chosen people the very law of God and they can't match it. They can't meet its standards. They're too high. And so they perish. And then the New Testament begins with God coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus. This is God in the flesh. He's a human now. And he begins to show all of those who are following him, this is how you love God. This is how you show compassion. This is how you have a relationship with God. This is how you forgive. This is how you love. And none of them could get it. And so at the end of the gospel, what you have is this incredible picture. Because Think about the, the, the roller coaster that the disciples have been on for a while, right? So they get called by Jesus, <coughs> and they think, man, we're going to be um, like first or second in the kingdom. We're, we're going to be high because Jesus is going to start. He's going to run these Romans off. We're going to start the kingdom here. This is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus never acts on that. And so they have these expectations that never get met. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested. Jesus is in prison. Jesus is convicted to death. And their whole world collapses. They all run for their lives. None of them are at the cross except for one. And then all of a sudden their whole world is crushed when Jesus dies. And he's buried in the tomb. And it's over. 
And three days later, they get this report that Jesus' body isn't there anymore. And they freak out, like, what do I, how, how could this be? And they run, they run, they run, they find it. There's no, no, no body in the tomb. How could this be? Then all of a sudden, they see things that they know that this is him. And then all of a sudden, he presents himself to them. And he's alive. And now, all of a sudden, where they were way down here, now they're way back up here again. And they're beginning to think, this is the beginning of the kingdom. Now we have really proven this. I mean, Jesus, if he can defeat death, hell, and the grave, then there's nothing that we can't do. We can run those Romans out. We can set up the kingdom of God and then the next thing that Jesus tells them is I gotta leave what you gotta leave where are you going I've got to go so that I can send another I gotta send you the comforter I want you to think about that in the context of the whole story because the truth is this we were given the law here we couldn't meet its expectations we were given the perfect example of how to love God and how to live as a human. We couldn't follow that example. And so here, what Jesus is saying is this. Listen, I've proven to you that you can't do it, so here's what I've got to do. I've got to do it for you. So I've got to leave so that I can walk inside of you and not beside you, so that I can live this life. You have to believe. You have to trust me. You have to yield to me. But if you will accept me, I will come into your life and my Holy Spirit will guide you and give you the power that you need to be the person that God designed you to be. Deeds reflect whether we come into the light or whether we remain in the darkness. You see, I love this statement. That one of the, it's a very simple statement, not profound, but I, I copied it straight out of the um, commentary that I was reading. So this is a direct quote. God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus has planted a sign in the middle of history, and the sign says, believe and live. It's that simple, and yet it's that complex. To be saved, we have to walk out of the darkness, and we have to walk into the light. And that's scary for a lot of us because we kind of like the facades that we've built about our own lives, about what we want people to think. But the truth is, that's not really who we are. I think all of us long to be loved and to be known by the same person. Because what we do is we put up a facade to those that we really need to be loved by. And then we go to counselors and pay people that we can share who we really are. And this becomes a duality of our existence. We're honest in some situations and we put up a fake front in the others. What we really desire in our hearts of of, the, of our souls, the very depths of who we are, is for that to be the same person. That we can be brutally honest and be brutally loved, deeply loved. And that's who God is. And when we walk into that kind of love and that compassion, it's safe to walk out into the light. And when we walk into the light, it's like literally being born and coming out of that darkness, being birthed into this light, and a whole new world is opened up to us. Let me tell you something. I don't know what you've learned growing up. I don't know what kind of examples you've had about what it means to love and to be loved. But let this verse that you may be so familiar with, but yet I hope today you see it from a whole different angle. That John, Jesus, through the words of Jesus, John is drawing our attentions to the truth of who God is. God didn't come to condemn you. So if your idea of God is sitting there going, oh, you never get it right, and I just, you, I'm so tired of you, and you keep falling to that sin, that's not God. He didn't come to, you're already condemned. He didn't need to do that. You're already condemned. He came to save you. He came to draw you out of that miserable existence that you've made for yourself. He's come to draw you out of those lies that you've bought from that serpent. 
And the reason that Jesus compares himself to a serpent lifted up in the wilderness is because he is humanity and he is the picture of the curse. He took the full wrath of God for us. And what a brutal wrath it was so that you could believe and have life. Let's pray together. God, what a familiar verse we have. What a profound truth it calls us to. Lord, have we become too familiar with the gospel? Lord, have we become too familiar with a verse that reminds us of the very heart of that gospel? It demonstrates your love, your motivations, your intention for us. It demonstrates why we are so longing to walk in the darkness and not be brought into the light. Because there is an enemy who deceives us and says you're better off in the dark. You're better off not telling people. You know, you can't trust anyone. But Lord, you are not any person. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you demonstrated your love while we were in the darkness. Not because we earned it or deserved it. You demonstrated it while we were far away. So that we could know that it's safe to be in a relationship with you. So that we can know that it's safe to be known and know that it's not going to change your love. It's safe because you have good intentions for us. You know where we are and you know where we w- you want us to be. And you will step inside of us and help us to achieve those things as we learn to give control of our life over to you and yield to you and your spirit as you guide us into the life you intended for us. Lord, I don't know where every person is in this room and their spiritual walk, but you do. And I pray that you would move on every heart here to respond to your word. They may know that they have eternal life. God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would receive the honor and the glory that you so deserve because of what you took on the cross. What an incredible picture of your love and how you view us. May our response be reflective of what we've come to understand about you and your character. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.